0: Just when you thought it was safe to get into the podcast waters, we're back with another Always Be Watching podcast. My name is Dan Barrett, and I'll be joined, as always, by Chris Yates. This week, we're taking a look at the great new Netflix movie, The Old Guard. We're also taking a retro look back at the movie Jaws. How does it hold up in an age of CGI, which still can't produce realistic-looking sharks? Oh yeah, and we're going to be joined in the Always Be Watching Clubhouse by director Alison Elwood. She's just made this really fantastic new two-part documentary called Laurel Canyon, Folks, stick around. This week's going to be a lot of fun. Good afternoon, good evening, good night. You are listening to Always Be Watching. My name is Dan Barrett, joined by Chris Yates. Chris, how the heck are you doing? I'm doing very good Dan uh, Better than usual this week Did you know that today, as we
1: record this On the, uh, what day is it, Tuesday It's sh- uh, Shark Awareness Day Is it
0: really? It is, I swear How fortuitous that we're going to be talking about the fantastic <laughs> 1975 movie Jaws Look, I think you're right about that
1: I was going to say, I would have said, guess 76 I can tell you that Jaws 2 was um, A 1978
0: film And Jaws was indeed a 1975 film Yes, you're right yeah, see, instinctively, I think I would have said 1976 as well. But in another twist of fate, I was watching Jeopardy this evening, and there was a question talking about the 1975 special effects done by the guy that did the shark. Ah. So anyway, the stars have aligned. We definitely need to be talking about Jaws this evening.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, you had the privilege of seeing it at
0: the cinema, I believe. Yeah, so I saw it at the cinema on the weekend, and I don't know if it was my conversation about that, which we did discuss on a very this very podcast. Like this time last week
1: ish. Yes, that's what inspired me to also watch it.
0: Let's get on to talking about something else first. All right. I don't want to just like go straight to Jaws because that's clearly the main meal here. And much like a great white shark feasting in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> Uh, I don't really know what my metaphor was that I was working towards there, but... There was one there. It was just circling around. You just had to... Exactly. And I did not land it. <laughs> no, that's all right. Don't worry. If anything, we... I feel like a lot of the fishermen that went out hunting the shark and never quite brought it in. Exactly. There were plenty of them. You're one of the local losers. <laughs> <sighs> Man, that hurts. So before we dive into the Emity waters, let us first take our minds and cast it to the ye oldies times as featured in the new Netflix movie, The Old Guard. I can't do this. Yes, you can. I mean, I'm not doing this. You're one
1: of us now. We would do the same for you. I never even had a choice. None of us
2: had a choice. There isn't a choice.
1: The day I died, I killed the guy that killed me. They try to condition us, you know? Thousands of hours of training. Two shots, quick kill. They can't teach you how to live with it. You gotta feel it, Maya. Everyone. I saw what you did in that church. All those bodies? Is that supposed to be me? Is that what we're supposed to do and we don't even know why?
0: You think knowing is gonna make you sleep better at night.
1: I can't be that. My family, they're going to get old and I won't, but it'll be years before they realize that I still have time with them.
0: So Chris, this was the number one movie over the weekend on Netflix, the debut weekend for it, and we're at a really interesting time period where the cinemas are all shut. Well, they're shut in like a lot of countries around the world. Australia's had them open again for the last few weeks, but there's very few new movies around. So all the biggest movies on the planet are pretty much launching on streaming services right now. And over this last weekend, we had The Old Guard on Netflix. Uh, We also had on Apple TV Plus, they had a Tom Hanks movie called Greyhound. Hulu in the US launched with Palm Springs, which is a big new um, indie sensation film starring Andy Samberg. And then there was also a horror movie called Relic, which went direct to VOD in the US, but in Australia, we got it here on the Stan streaming service. So, really big weekend for movies, and the biggest one is probably The Old Guard. Chris, did you see it? No. Guess how many of those films I watched uh, Well, look, I'd presume probably very few. Not a big movie guy. Zero. Especially movies you've never seen before. I only like movies where I know what's going to happen. Here's the thing with The Old Guard, I think there's definitely a bit of a throwback element to it that I think you'd probably really sort of get a bit of a kick out of. So, if you're watching The Old Guard and you're not reminded of, say, Highlander, a whole bunch, I'd be really, really surprised... So this is a film, it's based on the Greg Rucker comic book of the same name. Uh, The Old Guard is about a group of immortal mercenaries who've lived for centuries just going from one fight to the next, and when we join them in the movie, they've just been set up by someone that they kind of trusted. Now instead of immediately seeking revenge, they're actually knocked off their mission by the awakening of a new immortal. So there's like four people that have been hanging around together for centuries at this point, and then suddenly there's this fifth one that springs up. Uh, she's a young cool. U.S. Army officer. She just had her neck sliced in Afghanistan, and so she ends up joining the group. And together they go down and t- take down like their sh- now shared enemy, and that turns out to be Big Farmer, who are looking for ways to bottle immortality. This, their story mirrors my own life in so many ways. Look, absolutely. I mean, it's very much the Chris Yates story, so <laughs> it seems relatable for me. I think I might have to check it out. This is it. So while you call your lawyers, because. You know, this <laughs> is yes. clearly the next step for you. Uh, Maybe know that the film star Charlize Theron, the newly christened action star, like she started out as Indies when she was like a young sort of, you know, actress, like in her sort of physical prime. And the older she's gotten, as she's like reached her 40s going into, I think she's about 45 now. Like it seems like she's taking on action role after action role. Like it's almost like she's replacing Linda Hamilton as like the the older action uh, female star. Coincidentally, I'm also in the best shape of my life in my <laughs> early 40s as well. <laughs> You're wearing that tank top in an amazing way. <laughs> now, uh, working uh, working against her, uh, working with her is a relative newcomer named Kiki Lane, and the film's also got one of my favourite actors in it, uh, Chiwetel Chua, Chua- Efezor. I knew I'd butcher that trying to say it. It's one of those names you always read, but man, don't try saying it out loud, Chris. Chiwetel Efezor. Uh, it's directed by Gina Prince. I think my Skype is glitching. I, I can't quite. No, no. I'm just, that must be what's I'm happening. There's something wrong with the board, Chris. Yeah, yeah. Something... <laughs> uh, directed by Gina Prince. Bryth, uh, man, this is not my evening. Uh, Bythewood. Uh, basically, the entire film is like a great sort of Sunday afternoon, low-stakes action film. Um, the set pieces, they're not really that massive. And the action, like while it's quite good, we live in a post-John Wick world. So it's a bit hard to be disappointed by actions which isn't john wick sure yeah uh but anyway the film is perfectly capable it's you know a very engaging movie and also i found the films also really self-serious like there's no winking at the camera there's no cutesy dialogue or easy jokes and in that way it kind of feels like a throwback to the 80s and early 90s action films that we used to watch so you know those great cult favorites that we sort of discovered on vhs as young kids going to our teens uh, so things like you know Highlander and the Universal Soldier movies, that kind of thing. Basically, this film, Cyborg, Cyborg. like this film feels like complete throwbacks to that kind of era of cinema. And look, that's to say that I enjoyed it quite a bit.
1: Yeah, like that's a welcome return to some kind of movie making yeah. that uh, I, I miss a lot. I'll never forget seeing Terminator for the first time as a very young <laughs> child. Yeah, and um, at an age when I was certainly never showed to my own children, and just being like this is the greatest movie i've ever seen in my life all i want to do is watch terminator
0: it's kind of amazing that there's all these films that we grew up with but we would certainly not show movies of that caliber to like young kids the same age we were when we saw it and were perfectly fine as a result that's right it didn't really mess us up
1: i didn't become a kickboxer after watching van damme in Bloodsport when i was 10 years old
0: I, I, i didn't even turn a little bit violent maybe it put me off violence dance maybe I mean, there's all those people that you just murdered in the street the other week, but... (laughs) Other than that. Other than that, you know. Speaking of parallels to my life again. (laughs) Exactly. Anyway, The Old Guard, it's basically... Look, the one thing I found about it, because the action in it is kind of just so... uh... I don't want to say that it's, like, sort of lazy action, because it's certainly not. Like, they're very well choreographed action pieces. But I think because cinema's just really lifted the bar recently... Like, you're watching this, which is a very sort of standard action sequence, and you're looking at it, it, kind of just feels a little bit sort of TV-like. Like, watching this entire two-hour movie felt exactly like watching a, like, two-episode, uh, like, pilots to an ongoing TV show. Um, and even to the point where, like, the actual sort of plot and structure of it, because there's a lot of world building that takes place. You've got all of that going on, and then at the very end of the thing, they need to set up what's going to happen for future installments of The Old Guard. Because this is clearly set up to be like the next franchise for netflix so right. like i was gonna ask right at the end of it there's a scene where they all get together and they're given like a newfound purpose in life and the characters they don't exactly stand in a circle together and put their hand in for like that shared, shared sort of handshake <laughs> like that doesn't happen that may as well have happened because it really feels exactly like every terrible pilot conclusion that we'd seen sort of through yeah. most of television's yeah. existence But, like, it works perfectly fine and by the time that happens, you're more than willing to roll with it because the film's given you so much pleasure until that point. Um, Do you have
1: any ideas? I don't know how any of this works. Do we know what was the big winner out of all these um, Netflix streaming, uh, the streaming wars movies opening weekend?
0: Look, I mean, no one really gives their numbers away, but just based on my social feeds, I think The Old Guard was far and above everything. I didn't see anyone talk about any of the other films, but The Old Guard I saw constantly through my socials. Uh, the problem with the tom hanks movie i can tell you what that
1: is without having watched it or knowing anything about it (laughs) yeah not forrest gump too (laughs) uh
0: look i'm kind of okay with that but i did actually look (laughs) i watched greyhound which is that tom hanks movie this is him as a world war ii uh like naval captain He's been newly, he's like a new captain. He hasn't had a boat sort of that he's looked after himself. And it's basically for two hours, it's him being chased by Germans in U-boats. And so he's got like a fleece of ships behind him and they're trying to stop the U-boats from destroying them all. Like that sounds kind of fun. Like it's, it's very much just a dad movie. Okay. And it could be a dad movie in all the best ways, but it's a bit of a dad movie in all the really gross ways. Like, there's nothing that really takes place in the movie that, like, I found particularly that engaging. It was kind of going through the motions, and every time I thought it was about to step up and suddenly just become, like, this thing which is about to blow me away, it just kept on going, and there was just nothing that I could really sort of latch onto. And I think the big problem with the movie is is that it's a fairly low-budget affair, and all the ships and the oceans surrounding Tom Hanks are all obviously very CG. And the CG was fine, but it was all a bit weightless. So when I was looking at it all, yeah, like none of yeah. it felt real. It all just felt very much, you know, just like a cheap, like a cheap effort. Yeah.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's disappointing. Yeah. Um, and even more so than it not being Forrest Gump 2. Are you, are you in for Forrest Gump 2, Dan? No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you, you know why I'm not interested in Forrest Gump 2? No. It's because I've seen Forrest Gump 1. <laughs> Pretty good reason yeah what about
1: castaway 2 can we could we sequelize any tom hanks movie in a way that's appealing look i don't understand why he couldn't just go back to the island yeah exactly like he had a pretty good time there yeah I, I imagine
0: and look if tom hanks isn't up for it like i'm sure they could get the ball back here's my suggestion take a
1: dog with him this time a dog buddy movie
0: if i'm tom hanks and i've got a dog or a ball
1: like I'm talking to the dog. You, are you feeling bad for the for Woodrow the ball? Was that the name of the ball? Oh, I, I can't remember. Wilson, <laughs> not Woodrow. <laughs> the other, the other part of that. yeah, the other part of the beloved president. What did you say the other? What did you say the other? Um, the other one was oh the Andy Sandberg one. I am interested in that. You didn't catch that? Oh, one. No,
0: I totally did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did see. Did. Yes, I did see three movies at the cinema on Saturday, and yes, I did also see almost every single one of these big. Know, streaming movies oh as well it's a big weekend i've got a lot going on yeah huge effort yeah uh the andy sandberg film i'm actually going to talk about that on the podcast next week because it is worthy cool. of an actual like lengthy conversation uh anyway it's called pacific springs it's quite good pacific swings no palm springs palm springs
1: oh palm yeah. well, um yeah I'm, I'm keen to check that one out i think out of all of them that'll be the one that'll make me least want to um disappear off the face of the earth look absolutely
0: i think you'd probably enjoy the old guard if you sat down and watched it.
1: Yeah, I think I need, like, a decent hangover or something like that and just kind of
0: Look, it's, settle in. it's a great hangover, hangover film. It's a great Sunday afternoon movie. It's a great, oh, it's 1 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night. I don't quite want to go to bed just yet. That sounds like me. Yeah. Like, if you just want a low-stakes, fun action film, I think this is totally the one. Excellent. Yeah. Anyway, Chris. Speaking of action films. And speaking of movies that I saw over the weekend bed. at the cinema, shall we talk about the 1975 yeah. film Jaws?
2: There is a creature alive today who has survived millions of years of evolution. Who do you without think Without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. Lothra. A mindless eating machine. I think I dated her. A- it will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Jaws. (laughs) This is Universal's extraordinary motion picture version of Peter Benchley's best-selling novel, Jaws. I just found out that a girl got killed here last week you knew it you knew there was a shark out there you knew it was dangerous but you let people go swimming anyway
0: so jaws uh chris (laughs) what's jaws
1: about uh jaws is about a little a a seaside no an island town and a, a new york police chief moves there to become the sheriff of the island in a very to in a very change of pace for him i think the correct answer Uh, is it's about 102 minutes
0: but sorry go on
1: (laughs) let's see he wants to see change he moves there um as soon as he's there people start getting eaten by a shark in the water and um he tries to shut down the town to the tourists and keep the people out of the water to save lives and the mayor of the town uh wants to keep covering up shark attacks as it has maybe dan he has done in the past as boat accidents and um keep it all going which he tries which so it becomes this great little playoff playoff between the kind of economy versus people's well-being and welfare is that is that sound familiar to anything that's happening right now in the world well it sounds exactly my, like my life but go on <laughs> and um yeah and then the shark attacks heaps of people and then it eats a boat and then they kill the shark he kills the shark the cop does
0: Now, if I recall properly on the podcast from last week, and I wish I'd found the clip of it to put onto the soundboard so we could just apply it back to you, but you referred to Jaws as one of your favourite movies of all time. Yes. When was the last time you saw Jaws?
1: Look, not that long ago. I reckon, as we were discussing earlier, I do like to um, watch the same movies over and over again. So (laughs) I believe it was probably, um, like, in the last 10 years, certainly. Yeah. so, yeah, I wasn't... Uh, but, but you know, just hearing you talk about going to see it at the movies made me just go like, I really just should watch it again. It's time. Also really enjoying comfort films at the moment, as I've been talking about. And there's mm. no com- no films more comforting for me other than perhaps Return of the Jedi than the uh, spectacular Steven Spielberg movies of the 70s and 80s, which just like... I, I just can't even... They're just so Spielberg, aren't they? They're just really represent this kind of for me uh turning point of where movies um you know building on these great kind of films of the 70s that we had where you know we had real real stories told really slowly gritty stuff that all kind of getting polished up into like what became i guess the massive big um blockbuster kind of culture but the way and but there's no it's not a it's not an accident that that happened. Like I think just what Spielberg was doing in these movies in the eighties was just so perfect that it actually did change um, the way that we all watch films. And but like every decade <laughs> always think- sort of rejects the decade that came before. It. So do you think, do you think it's doing that? And I guess they do that by borrowing what's um, by borrowing the best bits out of it and try to take it somewhere different, which is what I think, um, I think, I think this film and those early Spielberg films do. Well, it does, because it's got the same sort of
0: grittiness that you found with a lot of his contemporaries from the 70s. Like, you look at, say, like, a Coppola or a Scorsese. Like, obviously, there's a lot of sort of dark grit going on, and structurally, they're not that different. But he's taking sort of what we now know is that that sort of Spielberg approach to it and making it a little bit more commercially friendly and just um, audience-friendly generally. And for, like, the next 15 years, like, he really sort of dominated with that style of film. And I think in the 90s, you started seeing a bit of a rejection of the Spielberg type. Uh, Like, if you think about, say, like, 94, which is probably the year where, like, 90s cinema started rejecting Spielberg, because Spielberg at that point had Schindler's List. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but, like, if you think about, like, that was obviously a big culturally dominant film, but you think about the other things that were dominant in culture cinematically at that point, and you're thinking about things like The Rise of Tarantino and, like, that sort of indie cinema like sort of come from the ashes. It was a throwback to what we've seen from the seventies and a rejection of the Spielberg big budget cinema of that era.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think maybe Jaws is so special because it's before that really kicks in, but it's still, it's still sort of, you know, winks at what's going to happen in the future. The thing I love about his films that I just find compelling is the believability and the realness of the scenes that happen in between all the action, right? So there's this just insane even though it's heavily scripted and even though it's like it's far from ad libbing or it's far from like being actual um you know looking like it's something that's just uh, looking like a documentary or something that's been filmed real There's there's a certain realness to it that is just so hard to uh to really put my finger on what it is about it but with jaws it's incredibly obvious because it kind of takes that whole by the time you see the stupid shark you just don't even care that it looks stupid you know like you're so heavily invested in the story in the people in the horror the horror elements of it are so good like you know they're proper and this is one of the things i want to talk about soon is which i'll get to is i also watched i watched jaws 2 the next day and um i was my memory of that was very very different where i thought that had more of that sort of horror slash of film vibe, but Jaws totally has that. It has jump cuts. It has like, you know, gore. It has all these things that um, you know, really come straight out of horror films, and then they're sort of plonked into this like, uh, you know, action film, which is also highly relatable and you know very much set in the sort of in a, in a real world. I, I could go on and on about how much I like this movie. So I'll try not to, yeah, well, but, but I, I was trying to distill the things that like, know everyone knows like the performances are fantastic. You know, the story is fantastic, but yeah, the things that really make it so appealing to me.
0: So like, I know it more from the pop culture-ness of it all rather than the actual film itself purely because sure. I honestly think that until I'd watched it on Saturday night, I'd maybe only seen the film once before. So I remember the first time I saw it, which was when it first came out on DVD And if you remember, it took a few years for Jaws to come out. So when it actually got released on DVD, it was a pretty big event because at that stage, people were getting a little bit tired, maybe with DVD as a format. But then suddenly there was just like this sort of, you know, great movie that suddenly made its way on there. And I remember there was just like a big marketing push behind it as well. But I ended up watching it then. I'm like, no, this is actually a really great film. And I just never watched it again for whatever reason. But sitting in the theater, I was really surprised at, first of all, how funny the movie is. Because yes. the movie's got these, these wonderfully sort of natural, like really earned organic sort of laughs that run through it all. But the other thing that threw me was just how nicely paced the movie is. So the movie takes its time to, like, it's not like the movie's lethargic by any means, because it's not. Like, it moves no. at a really sort of quick, uh, like, clip. But also, it takes its time as it's moving quickly through the town where, first of all, you're introduced to the shark really ahead of anyone else. Um, so you find his yes. victims first. And I'm suddenly gendering the shark. But Joyce is a boy, right? (laughs) Surely Joyce is a boy. (laughs) Has to be. Um, So we first find his victims, but then we sort of meet the shark. And so the shark's in it right from the beginning. But then after that, like, we start to meet the sheriff and his family. And then you go to the sheriff's office and you start going through the procedural nature of his job. And then he gets involved in the bureaucracy of the town and how his job butts up against that. And then the townspeople come into it, and so how his actions from earlier in the film suddenly actually have, like, real old implications for the townspeople, but then how the townspeople evolve into going from people just, like, upset and horrified at what's going on to everyone trying to protect their interests, and not their interest is economically in the town to so keep commerce and people coming to visit, or all the fishermen that are around the town as well who suddenly they see this as an opportunity to claim the, uh, was it $3,000 bounty? Yeah. On the, the shot. Sure. yeah so like it's just kind of you know step by step they just keep on growing out the world of jaws until suddenly you've got a really full image as to what's going on in this town and how everything sort of functions and is pieced together but all through the prism of just seeing it through the eyes of you know the local sheriff
1: like i didn't even know if i was going to watch the whole thing when i chucked it on i thought oh yeah i'll check it on for a bit and see how i go how with could it. you not um, though uh, exactly well, it's very and, like, watchable i think it was about I think it's about 20 minutes in and um i was already well and truly hooked again and it's not till then that you get richard Dreyfus, you know and it's just like bam there's just this massive personality comes out he's just funny and um you know it just plays that role so well the rich kid who just has spent his life you know with all these expensive gadgets trying to learn as much as he can about sharks and you know which i just thought which is just a great little character kind of and it's a great excuse to get that sort of boat and all that stuff in there but um yeah he's incredible like i think you know that's the that performance obviously made his whole career you know like he was never going to have trouble finding work after after how charming and funny and um great he is in that role but
2: yeah
0: like the film takes its time introducing him and like from yeah as i said i know the film pop culturally so to my mind like the trio of Brody, Quince, and Hooper. Like, I would have thought, like, that's the majority of the movie. But really, that's like that final third of the film. Like, it takes... The film spends so long oh. putting all the building blocks in place that by the time that I actually got all the blocks in place, it just feels so natural for the film to be defined by these three guys going out on a boat together and their relationship is already firmly in place before they even sort of step foot onto the boat. But once they so do... Really, like Even know, though the... there
1: hasn't been a lot of interaction between them before that point. No, like, not, not at all. It's so well done like that. And then you get the great, you know, you get the the great boozing scene where they're get, getting drunk on the boat. Like, you know, alcohol's a big part
0: of it, um, and a big part of Brody's uh, character is that he's a bit of a drunk. <laughs> but then, like, um, they're all showing like their various uh, wounds that they've gotten over the years, and it's great. Yeah, like, it's yeah. it's a great sort of jovial moment that you just aren't really expecting because you kind of think as soon as they get on the boat, like, suddenly things are going to get really, really tense, and this is like where it's going to start amping up. And it kind of does that, but they take all the time to have these character moments. Totally. And it just really keeps you...
1: And it's not even... It's like it's not really trying to make um, Quint more likable because there's just nothing likable about him and that's what's great. (laughs) But it's just... It's really about... You know, it almost feels like it's just there to kind of, like, lull you into a sense of security again that you're just watching, like, this kind of... These guys having fun. And even though the tension is still there and it's, you know, they're obviously on this crappy little boat in the middle of the ocean... It's still just a, it's such a fantastic scene. And then for, the, the
0: music's a bit too
1: jaunty the, for my liking, but beyond that. Yeah. You, yeah. You said you didn't like the little adventurer. I, I, and I, it's funny cause you said that before I watched it, this kind of got this little motif of sort of buccaneer kind of,
0: doo, 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 doo. it's almost like a little bit of
1: Popeye music.
0: And that's the thing, like essentially cause it came out in 75. I think that cinema had established that music as being sort of part of the genre so when John Williams is incorporating that into his score, like it kind of felt like it was a natural sort of extension of what that kind of film is. But when you look at Jaws today, because Jaws kind of set a template for what we think of that sort of movie now, and it just doesn't really fit in with what you'd find a modern composer would have done in the same position. Like no, pro- it would be a very not. tense. I, 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 don't, I don't think I would have noticed it had you not, had
1: you not pointed it out. But, it's, but because you did, I got infinitely annoyed by it as it went on. No, not really. <laughs> a couple of times. But um, I just quickly—I know you haven't watched rewatched it yet, or maybe you haven't watched it at all. But I watched um, yeah, I watched Jaws two the next night because I was just like, I mean, I'm in now. I've never seen it. I've seen parts of Jaws four. Yeah, (laughs) which, as I understand, is the best of the series. (laughs) Um, I was blown away by how good Jaws two was. Like, I was really not expecting it to be uh, what it was. I think you know, at the time, it was probably one of the first kind of sequels to like a big well-respected film right where it was like a lower budget sequel where the original director didn't come back I don't know how early that that whole sequel kind of culture goes back but it feels like to me that was always kind of derided as like whenever there was a film that got a crappy sequel made after it it was sort of like this joke about how it was like Jaws 2 and I felt like Jaws 2 had this really um unfair kind of uh you know stigma around it for being this unnecessary sequel when really they did such a great job with it i I won't get too far into it but it's basically split into two halves where you get this incredible setup um where you've got Brody dealing with the um you know ptsd of having come face to face with this shark the size of a bus that was that ate his boat that ate the boat that he was on um dealing with that still being in the town still being in the job still wanting to protect the people but clearly at his wit's end clearly drinking too much having a bad time kind of in the shadow of his wife whose career's taken up and uh, and she's on board with the um you know she's working for the mayor basically working for the city um trying to sell developments on the island so she gets this whole really cool backstory she gets this whole kind of extension to her character as well and um and then you know the it sets up this the the big scene at in at the in the whole sort of first half of the film is you know them getting to getting to know the kids in the town it's this group of teenagers you know where you can tell that it's leading up to significant moment for the teenagers and it's about halfway through the film where it basically switches into this just insanely riveting suspenseful incredible kind of like uh scene that's just fully shot on the water like it's really really weird and and really interesting the way they've sort of done it the way they have and um one of the other things that i found really that that i really really liked about it was that um it played down it actually plays down the gore and stuff like a lot of the things that you would expect a cheaper um hackier version to go for like you know, having, maybe having a bigger monster or having more monsters or having more blood in the water, it really doesn't do any of those things at all. And it's a little, it's a lot more cerebral than that. So I think that film in itself, it still has, you know, it still feels very seventies and it's not as sophisticated as a film by any means. And I think, but I think that's all for the best, you know, like, I think that's really what makes it what it is. I can't imagine that Spielberg could have made a sequel to it. That would have been um, anything more than just like sort of the same movie again. Whereas by, by sort of using this different approach to it and not trying to make it um, not trying to make it as spectacular as that film but just sort of focusing I think it really hones in and manages to focus in on things about it that really really work there's heaps of great little odes you know there's heaps of great little nods to the film that have been put in um like almost Easter eggs really that reference the first film and and some of the stuff he's going through and man I was really really impressed so yes I'm, i would highly recommend anyone except now i've talked it way too up because i was really expecting it to be terrible which was probably part of the reason why i found it so enjoyable but like i really yeah i really do think that it um is is a is a very valid sequel i've, I've heard that the third installment is not so great and i can't remember anything about that except when i saw it it was on 3d it was jaws 3d and it, and the tv week when it was on tv came with <laughs> yeah glasses with the red and blue black glasses that you could watch but i remember absolutely nothing about the film except for that so i look forward to um boring you about that one next week well
0: i did notice that jaws 2 and jaws 3 are on netflix so i might give them a look over the Excellent. next few
1: days yeah do it yeah do it <laughs>
0: if if i can find the times to squeeze in a movie or two yeah yeah that's right yeah
1: see if you can fit into your busy schedule so anyway i reckon you know jaws well jaws is still one of the greatest films of all time and definitely one of my favorite films. It's it's um, much derided sequel, Jaws 2 is well,
0: well worth checking out. Now, Chris, going from the mid 70s, let's maybe go back to the mid 60s. Let's kick it back a little bit earlier. Um, I want to take you to a two-part documentary that I think is really quite good. It's called Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon was a place people were attracted to like a magnet.
2: It was a very small community of musicians and long-haired weirdos. We were at the very center of this beautiful bubble of creativity and friendship. The birds, Neil Young, the monkeys, Crosby, Stills, Nash, the doors, Jackson Brown, Linda Ronstadt, the eagles, the mamas and poppins.
1: Cue the tape. Joni Mitchell sat on the grass with her guitar. David
2: Crosby was showing up.
1: Eric clapped and he
2: sat there. Eric Dylan showed up there. There was a freedom that exploded. The music can't help but reflecting the things that are happening around it. There are periods in history when there are peaks. Paris in the 30s, the Renaissance in Italy, Los Angeles around 65,
0: 75. When a chemistry happens between people musically, it's magic. So yeah, if you're not really familiar with Laurel Canyon, basically it's a area in the Hollywood Hills where through the 60s and 70s, this is kind of where all the, uh, there was a bit of a shift happening in terms of popular music of the early to mid 60s, where you suddenly had this new wave of folk rock pop acts that came about. And for some reason, they all started more or less moving into that same neighborhood. And they're all there. And that's sort of these young musicians who didn't have a lot of money, but had a little bit of money entering their lives because they were starting to get a little bit of heat behind them. So even those without money still had the ability to be able to afford to rent places there or were living off the generosity of their other mates. So like it's this large community of emerging musicians who really defined the music of the time for like the next 10 years. And so through the mid 60s through the mid 70s you took out these amazing acts and like you heard them all name checked through that little bit of uh trailer just then like essentially what you are hearing is a veritable who's who of music of the time and a lot of them are captured in this documentary either the people who've actually sort of sat for interviews with the documentarian or they've just gotten some archive audio of them and the entire documentary isn't so much trying to expose what was going on back there But it's really just this celebration of a culture that was kind of happening behind the scenes of the music and just the sheer sense of community that was built around all these musicians at the time i'd love to watch this you know this is right up my alley and
1: um yeah i was really hoping you would have gotten a chance uh, to see this yeah uh which which i definitely i definitely will what i find really interesting about it is you know like all these things um you know as soon as they got some attention on it and as soon as it sort of started to blow out then of course, you know, that's when people start to say it goes horribly wrong. And it's, and it looks like this, the series is built into two episodes. One that sort of does talk about the, um, you know, the, the inevitable downfall of the scene and the the Manson murders and how all that kind of um, impacted it. I, I just got it. There's a great Neil Young quote um, from the song Revolution Blues uh, that I've just pulled out, which is actually, it's like the last lyric of the song. Um, which is just a fantastic track, but his, his last line is, well, I hear that Laurel Canyon is full of famous stars, but I hate them worse than lepers and I'll kill them in their cars. <laughs> and I, I, th- I really feel like that kind of, you know, uh, 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 summed up the idea of, of, of how Neil felt about it all by that stage. And of course he probably became, you know, him and the Eagles, I guess, and other um, two that really smashed through to become the kind of middle of the, the template for middle of the road rock. Uh, in america at that point but um you know like you say yeah lots and lots of famous names in there and um it's definitely something that i am keen to watch dan
0: yeah one of the things that i think is really nifty about it is that you never see i think you've got maybe a total of two people that you see actually addressing the camera the rest of it is really just people's voices oh, laid wow. over the top of some really uh, like just great archive footage that they've come across, and some amazing photographs they've got access to as well. So you're really seeing like this really candid display of the life of all these just amazing musicians at the time. And even if like, you know, so I think about say like acts like the birds, where I, if you ask me, like, what are the birds saying? Like, I probably couldn't really tell you off the top of my head. But as soon as you hear it, it's like, oh, it's that track, and it's that track, and it's that track. Like, it's such a indelible part of, like, what you know about music. all kind of comes from, like, this era. Yeah, yeah, totally. And
1: especially that kind of, you know, and a lot of that stuff was really big out here in the sort of early, in the 80s especially. And, you know, the um, all that kind of country, all the, all the stuff tinged with a bit of country like the Eagles, you know, it was just massive out here. Yeah. All over AM radio. And, yeah, really big part of that soundtrack too the young part of our lives, I'm sure. Yeah,
0: I spent a lot of the last year listening to old KHJ radio station recordings from the late 60s. So they were featured really heavily in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Of course you did. And so after watching that film and like there's something about the mood and the spirit of that movie, like it's a real celebration of like that sort of level of fame happening in the Hollywood Hills. And so, because my mind was already really sort of wrapped around like the sort of sense of nostalgic joy The fact this documentary comes along and as you said, it is split in two and the second half is definitely quite a bit darker than that first part, but there's still a lot of nostalgia to be mined from it. And it really is a celebration of the time. And in a way it kind of rejects a lot of the darkness of the era as well. Like it it definitely talks about it and it definitely addresses it, but like, that's not really what you're there to see. Like it really is saying, look, this is this great community that builds up. Like, let's actually like celebrate that. And so you kind of need to talk about that darkness because obviously that's what leads to its downfall eventually. And everyone starts moving away from the area or at least has better houses. And so it's not like really that same sense of community around yeah, it Yeah, yeah, totally. But I don't know, like there's just definitely something about this documentary that's hitting at the exact right time. Now, Chris, if you want to check out the documentary, it's currently streaming on a documentary focused streaming service called DocPlay which if you go and check that out, like there's a bunch of really great feature docs on there. I've had a look at it. Yeah, yeah. When you sent it through to me, I checked it out. It looks amazing. Yeah. Really cool platform. Anyway, the people at DocPlay were like kindly enough because they heard how much I enjoyed the doco to put me in contact with Alison Elwood, who's the director of the two-part documentary. So I'm going to have a chat with Alison now. Alison, good morning. Good morning. Look, I really adored the documentary. What were the origins of the project? What actually brought you to this?
2: Um, When I was living in Los Angeles years ago, I was, I've always been a big Doors fan and I uh, wanted to make a documentary about the Doors and then I discovered that they had lived in Laurel Canyon there was all this crossover. And then I thought, wow, that's a great story, a much bigger story. Um, But the music rights were so just disparate at that point and really hard to get. So it was impossible then. And so some 20 something years later, it came back to me through Jigsaw and Alex Gibney's company who I've worked with for ages. And so I was thrilled to get an opportunity to actually make the film.
0: Yeah. I noticed that Amblin are on board as a like production company. Like I'm assuming that company like Amblin probably really makes it much easier to move the music rights and get some of those clearances.
2: Well, we have a, an amazing music guy, uh, John McCullough, who has worked magic on, on many films that we've done, worked with him. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, you know, the music, music budget was high on this obviously, but, um, Understandably, but um, yeah, so it was it was amazing to get to finally make the film.
0: Yeah, uh, one of the things I was really sort of take, uh, surprised by a bit was just that it's a two parter, and not a feature doc.
2: Well, we originally wanted it to be three parts, actually, um, and um, Epix wanted it to be you know at least two episodes, um, and to do to drag to turn it into three. It was just an easier break point, sort of the innocence up to Manson, and then. Manson you know sort of the second half 65 to 75 basically so it basically splits at 69 yeah um and it just made made it a a nice point to break it's
0: kind of interesting you talk about Manson sort of being that sort of break point because when you actually open up part two it doesn't start with the sort of horrors of Manson but really it's actually a really optimistic opening so you actually start with the landing on the moon followed by Woodstock a couple months later like I was just yeah. wondering sort of, obviously you wanted sort of parts two to have that sort of slightly darker edge, because obviously that's kind of what leads to the downfall of Laure- Laurel Canyon as right. being a bit of a community at that point. But at the same time, you did actually open it with a really hopeful, just optimistic um, opening to that part. I was wondering what the thinking is there.
2: Well, it, w- it was hopeful at that point. I mean, the darkness hadn't quite set in yet. Um, and also part two, you know, despite the darkness, the kind of, you know, as, as um, Graham Nash says, sort of, you know, puts a pin in that beautiful bubble um, there were amazing artists that still come out of that place so you know it, we you know we didn't want to make it seem like it was all going to be dark dark doom and gloom in part two because it's not there's beautiful work that's still coming out.
0: Yeah. Uh, now, I found it kind of really interesting watching it, particularly this year seeing it. I've spent the last year absolutely obsessing over Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is obviously yeah. set in a very similar, well, I mean, same streets. I mean, you do address sort of the Charles Manson-ness of it all. Uh, but that film, it was, it was like rejection of the darkness of the era and the cultural shift that was underway. And obviously you're working in a very sort of similar time period and location. And I was wondering how purposeful it was for you to also reject the darkness, because I felt that that was really a very purposeful move that you were making throughout it. Like it was really a bid for the nostalgic optimism of the music and what it really represented.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, in some ways we almost wanted the Manson and Altamont and the darker side that, that does come into it to just almost be like a turning point in growing up. It's just like when the reality of the world kind of hits, and it hits for everyone at some point, obviously not as extreme as Manson or those things, but it, it's, it, they matured. It's a, it's a process of maturity. And, and when you discover that there's darkness in this world that you've tried to create all this light and music and art and fill it with, with beauty, that, that there's a real challenge to keep that going. And they, and they did, which is what was great about it. Yeah. Uh, what do you think maybe sort
0: of contributed to its downfall more? Do you think it was maybe the sort of darkness of Manson or do you think maybe it was the mass exposure of something like Woodstock that actually gave the music scene a much bigger platform than I think it would have had previously?
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even think it was Woodstock. I think that they, the, 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 the bands, the acts, the artists, they just got bigger. And I think Linda Ronstad nails what happened. It's like they stopped going to the Troubadour and playing in these small clubs for one another They go out and they do stadiums and arenas. They're not playing music with each other. They're not hearing each other anymore. They're making a lot of money. Obviously, the choice of drugs changes from pot to cocaine, which has a huge impact also. Um, Probably bigger than anything. I think Manson was small compared to that, frankly. (laughs)
0: uh i was wondering was there anything really surprising you found through the making of this so obviously you're pretty versed in it to begin with but was there any sort of real revelatory moments
2: you know i think the thing my concern going into it was that i didn't want it to feel like an anthology going from one story to the next to the next and what we found were these wonderful little connections with the bands with with each other um and that was sort of how we kind of threaded the thing, which was, you know, like the Love and the Doors story. I mean, who, who would have known that Love, you know, kind of, you know, did themselves in by trying to get out of a record deal and pushing the Doors, who then took all the money they didn't, you know, the record company gave them the money to promote the Doors and Love got kind of left in the dust. And to this day, they're not nearly as, as known as the Doors because of that, I think.
0: Yeah, look, I mean, I'm really just discovering love at the moment, so it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas I've known the Doors for my entire life.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so those things were great when you know, and to and to give, you know, to give an op- a band like Love or Little Feet, you know, an opportunity to, because you know, they were just amazing musicians and talent and songwriters, and to have that give them their moment in this light too is great.
0: Yeah, I'm a film and TV guy more than a music guy, so the things that I really sort of was just. Blown away by was one discovering the nudist nature of Peter's Hawk from the monkeys. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic Uh, also there was it was like a brief sort of throwaway comment but there's a statement made about how Harrison Ford used to regularly hang around because I think about Harrison Ford as being the carpenter who got discovered became an actor was was, like doing a bit of side acting but then hearing that comment made me realize wait no Harrison Ford was probably hanging out with these guys anyway like it was going to be natural that he was able to elevate himself because he was already just part of the scene
2: yeah I mean you know he designed Peter Tork's studio (laughs) he built it it's so
0: Oh, cool <laughs> yeah like steve martin factors into it through linda yeah. Ronstadt. Yeah. yeah yeah
2: yeah
0: no there's just some great moments there with the actual interview subjects themselves you've got these amazing interviews that you have done through it. you only really, really hear the voices of the majority of people that you talk to and i was wondering from a stylistic standpoint was that a very deliberate effort or was it really more just in terms of what you're able to access because you also have that archive content as well
2: yeah no it was always deliberate we wanted it to be immersive and experiential and You know, you don't, cutting out, uh, first of all, there are a lot of artists. Secondly, a lot of them are no longer with us, unfortunately. So there'd be a disparity of who you could see contemporaneously anyway. Um, And we just, and also people I think are just a little bit more intimate when you do audio-only interviews. But stylistically, we just wanted to be in that time period. And the only people that take us out of it at all, and I think they don't because they're part of it, were uh, Henry Delton and Norit Wilde who were our photographers, and they're the only ones we actually interview on camera, but they're showing us their photographs and telling us their experience of meeting these people and getting to know them because they were part of the scene. They weren't just, you know, onlookers. They lived the life.
0: Yeah. I mean, it made more sense to me that you're seeing them because they're kind of the archivists of it as well, as opposed to really just, Yeah. yeah, it's not explicitly just their experience. Right. There was also just the aspect, this is quite some time ago now, and the people talking are significantly older. So by hearing their voices, you're still really experiencing it as youth rather than you are right. yeah, with that life right. experience.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. Just keep them in that moment, keep them young. um, And yeah, so that was always the plan. And I do think there's just something really, uh, like I said, it's just really special to just do audio only interviews. I think people are just more relaxed, not being on camera. They're, you know, I think there's an intimacy that you get. And, and I think it comes through in the film, which is great.
0: Yeah. And I mean, visually, it's actually a very visually exciting documentary, even though you are relying a lot on photographs, which means for a static image on a moving yeah. you know platform, I just thought was quite a credit.
2: Well, I love using photographs in films. I mean, photographs, you know, are just stunning.
0: Um, now, I'm going to let you go in a moment, but because you are Australian and this is an Australian based podcast. So, you know, there's a prerequisite question I have to ask you about uh, sort of how did you end up in the U S like what actually moved you over there? Cause I'm looking at your filmography and you've got some amazingly just interesting sort of things that stick out to me. Like early on in your career, you were doing like Tanner 88, which is a fairly seminal TV series. Yeah. Uh, also I noticed you did the Roseanne reality show. I think it was called the real Roseanne from memory.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the real Roseanne. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so what got you to the U S?
2: Well, um, I was born in Australia. My dad was British. My mom was American. Mm. Um, and he, my father was, um, sent over to Australia to do some work, and we were there. I was only there for a couple of years, but my aunt, my father's sister, also moved to Australia, so I have a lot of family in Australia, so we just had a big family reunion a few years ago, which was lovely. Um, And uh, so I lived, we moved from Australia back to the U.S., then we moved to the U.K., then we moved back to the U.S., So it's been a lot of moving around.
0: The fact that you are moving around a lot, do you think that's maybe given you a bit more of a desire to be able to tell the stories of other people? So, I mean, I know for myself, I moved around a fair bit as a younger person and I don't know, you actually really get the same sort of level of roots that I think people have if they live in an area entirely. And you tend to be more of an observer, I think than really living your own experience to a certain degree. Yeah,
2: I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've just always loved stories. And when I was a kid, I was mesmerized by national geographic and photos and stories and, That's what I wanted. I wanted to be a photojournalist when I was, I think, five. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, so I think becoming a documentary filmmaker is basically the same.
0: Oh, Alison, I'm going to let you go, but thank you very much for your time. I'm excited to check out this Go-Go's documentary. Yeah. What should we look out for with this? Like, tell us about the Go-Go's doc.
2: Uh, That's premiering in in the US on Showtime July 31st. I don't know what the Australia um, uh, broadcast plans are for that, but it's basically the history of the Go-Go's starting in their punk days in Los Angeles and going up to their rise through, you know, pop stardom.
0: Look, that sounds wild. And
2: they wrote a new song oh, for really? us, which is a very, very and they were, we, we hear it at the end of the film and they're releasing the new song the same day the film is released. So that's exciting.
0: Oh, that's incredible. Okay. Well, I'm very excited yeah. about that one. And yeah, as I said at the beginning of this Laurel Canyon, I was really blown away by, it. I went into it, her- I-, I thought it'd be a fun diverting two hours, but it's just incredible. I was really taken.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. It's, uh, it's very special. And I want to shout out to my cousins and aunt and uncle and all my family.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Alison, thank you very much.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Now, Chris, we're back. So that was Alison Elwood, the director of Laurel Canyon. Really cool two-part documentary. I'm smitten with this doco. I, I went into it expecting this will be fine, but I, you know, I, I had a song in my heart after watching it, Chris. I look forward to seeing it. I've got some really nice new speakers
1: connected to my TV, which will um, enable, which is making watching music documentaries a a pure joy at the moment. So I look forward to
0: Chris, this probably brings us towards the end of yet another amazing Always Be Watching.
1: I've had an amazing time. I hope our listeners have had half as much fun as I've had, because that would still be a fair amount of fun.
0: I was listening to a podcast during the week, and it was a brand new podcast with a guy who's a... Uh, I, I want to say he's like a best-selling New York Times um, writer. This may have just yeah. given away who the person is. But anyway, brand new podcast. <laughs> it's kind of like a big deal. This guy's started this podcast. And he keeps on just talking in every episode that he's done. I've listened to a few of them about how amazing his show has been, how amazing the guests are. And he just like really amps up just like the high quality of what he's offering. And like, I've listened to a few of them and it's it's not really that great. <laughs> But it's really got me thinking that maybe I just need to embrace that same philosophy in life. The more I talk up myself, like the more maybe other people get on board with the Dan Barrett train.
1: Is this why we're just languishing in obscurity? Because we're so self-effacing. That's exactly the problem. It's not not our lack of talent at all. It's just because we don't talk ourselves up enough.
0: No, it's because we don't address our amazing talent. We don't talk about our stunning good looks. It's true. I barely mentioned it. Our exceptional hygiene barely touched upon. I'm enjoying your uh, dressing gown you're wearing there. <laughs> we don't need to talk
1: about Dan Barrett after dark. <laughs> um, well, anyway, it, yes, it's a great. It's, it's been a great opportunity for me to finally talk about Jaws, Dan. I appreciated that. And to try and, um, you know, even though I haven't really added anything too new to the conversation there, I hope I've inspired some other people to get, a, get on board Shark Awareness
0: Week. <laughs> and um, watch some Jaws I've just stretched it out To a whole week This is the thing Like essentially The entire purpose Of the Always Be Watching podcast Covertly Has been trying to get people To actually sort of Take Shark Awareness Week seriously <laughs> That's right Finally we've, we've, Now we've infiltrated everyone We've managed to get it in there And I couldn't be happier That's exactly it Like people came For some conversations About movies and TV shows And they've suddenly Walked away thinking A lot more about their role In shark ecology Absolutely Which we, which we all should indeed we should chris yates it has been a pleasure and educational excellent yes anyway it has been another amazing week we'll be back for a fantastic week next week where look i mean superlatives don't even begin to cover the stunning nature
1: it's going to be the grandest podcast in the history of podcasts
0: including joe rogan <laughs> are we talking are we pro rogan have we taken that stance in this podcast i don't I don't. No, no i don't know we're pro news we're pro rogan in news radio right i'm definitely pro rogan in news radio i don't know if i'm pro rogan podcaster like i certainly listen to the occasional one but then i probably won't listen to like the next 15 after that so i don't really know <laughs> where my interests lie
1: No, look, I I was more uh, implying that our impact on the podcast world
0: is similar to what Mr. Rogan's has been. That's right. Our $80 million Spotify deal is only a matter of weeks away at this point, I'm sure.
1: Come on, Spotify. I'm waiting by the
0: phone. (laughs) Indeed. Anyway, incredible podcast. It'll be back (laughs) next week. Chris Yates, it has been a pleasure. If people enjoyed the Always Be Watching podcast, because of course they did, they will also enjoy the daily newsletter, which, look, frankly, it's phenomenal. It's the best newsletter I've ever gotten. Look, I mean, it's defined newsletters for an entire new generation of newsletter recipients. True. I'm working on my own newsletter just
1: to mimic your newsletter. Yeah, good luck. Keep on watching. (laughs) I'm just going to copy all the stuff you put in yours every day and send it out. No, no. Always
0: been been watching. Every day you get up to 10 stories about like what's happening in screen culture, so the exciting interesting news stories that people are talking about on their social media feeds, you'll be across them hours beforehand because you've signed up to receive this free amazing newsletter. Also, there's on Friday afternoons the uh, summary as to all their new shows and movies that have launched during the week that you might want to check out. I find it helpful to put it together. I think maybe people find it exceptionally helpful to like plan their weekend viewing around it.
1: Little did little did the listeners know until today that you actually watch every single thing you recommend on the Friday on the Friday email over the course
0: of your weekend. <laughs> I think I actually did this week. Anyway, Chris Yates, it has been a pleasure, redefining pleasure. Do you remember at the end of the movie Barbarella when she encounters the villain Duran Duran? And he yes, puts her into of the pleasure machine. That's
1: just what this podcast
0: is. I, I can't remember exactly what it's called. Is it like an orgasmatron or something? <laughs> sure. I can't remember either. But yeah, you're on the right track. Yeah. Anyway, the experience of Barbarella in that orgasm-inducing machine is exactly the same pleasure I've gotten from this podcast right now.
1: Oh my God. That's terrifying. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of fun for me too, I guess.
0: Sure. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Boy, has this gotten off the rails. Uh, it's huge, fine huge thanks to Alison Elwood who I'm sure is even more grateful that she got the ability, the opportunity to be on this podcast with us absolutely who, who wouldn't folks this has been Always Be Watching we'll be back next week
2: How much of that'll make it into the final edit? Who knows?